Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to my friend Jennifer Wallace. Jennifer is the author of the new book, Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Jennifer is an award-winning journalist and a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Jenny lives in New York City with her husband and their three teenagers. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you guys so much for having me. So you first got the idea for this book because you're a reporter on sort of parenting issues for the Washington Post. I remember reading this article. You reported on two studies that had some seriously surprising findings about what kind of youth are at risk in today's society. Tell us about that. Yes. So in 2019, two national policy reports found added a new at-risk group to, you know, the children that we traditionally think of as at-risk. Children in poverty, children with incarcerated parents, recent immigrants, children living in foster care. And then they added students in what they call high achieving schools. Those are competitive public and private schools all around the country where, you know, most of the children at the school go on to four year colleges where they, these are schools that have AP offerings and rich extracurricular activities. So what researchers were finding is that those kids, those children in those competitive schools were now at risk for two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of depression, anxiety, and substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. And that, you know, as you mentioned, I have three teenagers and they go to to one of these competitive schools. And I wanted to find out, one, how did we get here? And two, what could I do in my home to buffer against this and be a better buffer? And I think that as I listen to this, we're, we get it, right? Like this is the fact that kids in maybe underserved communities or who have an unstable environment that they're trying to function in suffer because of lack of resources. They're having emotional trouble as a result of a tremendous amount of instability, fear, anxiety on one end. And then I'm filling in the gaps that at the other end, this is coming from parental, societal, and everyone has to go to Harvard and take 96 different extracurricular activities to get there. Is that what the picture looks like? That's exactly right. When researchers look at the top, they call them top environmental factors that can make a kid at risk, 
you mentioned poverty, there's discrimination, and then there's an excessive pressure to achieve. And that is, you know, the Surgeon General issued a health advisory a few years ago on our youth mental health, naming this excessive pressure, this these messages in our environment that tell our students, our children, that they are not good enough, that they're not smart enough, that they're not beautiful enough, not popular enough, and that never enough feeling is causing an excessive pressure that's unrelenting. That's interesting. So it's not just you have to go to Harvard and get, you know, a 4.75 to get there. It's also you're on Instagram and seeing, you know, everybody looking flawless in their bikinis and also. So it's not just this issue of high functioning for your college education. It's the pressure is wider than that. Correct. I mean, it. the population that I studied for this book are kids in the top 25% of household incomes. So that's roughly $130,000 a year, depending on where you live, combined income. So, And the pressures, like you mentioned, some of them are academic, some of them are sports related, some of them are, you know, Instagram likes related popularity, and just that these messages are eroding their sense of worth. When a child is building an identity in adolescence, they're absorbing these messages that who they are is not enough. And so it's creating this very unstable sense of self, and it makes them vulnerable to anxiety, depression, and substance abuse disorder. You make this excellent point in the book that not only are there more arenas in which kids feel pressured to achieve, but then the bar in each of those areas is also going up, right? So the bar is higher and there's also more bars. And it isn't just about getting to Harvard, right? Because I think it's very easy and I've seen it done and it always rubs me the well, I went wrong way, but I've seen it done often that's like, oh, if parents would just stop pressuring these kids, everybody would be fine. But as Margaret just pointed out, it starts, it's wider and it also starts a lot younger than senior year of high school. Oh, 1000%. And a big reason why I chose to write this book is because I was so tired of the narrative that this is all about parents wanting status and bumper stickers and, you know, their contingent self-esteem on their kids. What I found in my research is that these pressures are bigger than any one family, any one school and any one community that what parents are up against today is so different than the environment that the three of us grew up in, in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, I could get into that a little bit. Remember in the, in the 70s and early 80s, you know, life was generally more affordable back then. Housing was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. Groceries were more affordable. So parents could be a little bit more relaxed in their parenting because they had a sense that even if a child had setbacks and failures, they would most likely end up okay. You know, previous generations had at least done as well as their parents, if not better. That was sort of the promise of the American dream. And what we've seen in the last few decades is that an ushering in of extreme inequality, a crush of the middle class, hyper competition, globalization, and the future feels so unknown. We don't know what the majority of jobs will be like when our kids, you know, leave school. And parents are, in the words of researchers, you know, absorbing these macroeconomic forces and becoming social conduits, preparing our kids for this unknown, somewhat scary future. And it comes out in our parenting behaviors. 
So while I'm not saying we parents, you know, should be let off the hook, what I'm saying is we need to put into context, which we rarely do, that the reason parents are parenting so intensely is because they view fewer safety nets for their kids, that life feels harder. And we are nervous that it's going to be harder for our kids. This is a natural response to these messages in our environment. But what I have found and why I'm here, I'm sure, and why I wrote the book is that, you know, we're trying to put this sort of safety vest on our kids so that they can float in a sea of uncertainty and be protected. But really that safety vest that we're doing with our intensive parenting is drowning too many of the kids we're trying to protect. This is such an anecdotal version of this, but I think that I look at it as in my own family, my grandfather ran a diner and his son went to a community school and became a lawyer and then had four kids and three of them went to elite, you know, Ivy schools. And then they, between us now, there's nine kids. Like it feels like a reverse pyramid scheme in a way that like the idea of defining success, like the American dream maybe needs to shift somehow because we can't all race to the same mountaintop. There's not enough room, but that the peak has been kind of defined as this very specific thing. And there's no more room anymore. Is like, does that make sense? I think that makes perfect sense. And I would go even a step further that we know from the research, life at that peak is not necessarily a great life. Yeah, that's really interesting. I do say that all the time. Like I've been to the mountaintop and it's not all that, but at the same time, then I hear sometimes privileged parents being like, well, they need to bring back trade schools. It's like, but wait, your kid's not going to trade school. So like, who are we bringing back the trade schools for? Like maybe... I have a kid who should be thinking about trade school and not running up the mountain. It gets soupy pretty quickly. Well, I think what we struggle with in the U.S. is that we have come to believe that wealth equals well-being. And so if we're hoping to set our kids up for midlife and later life happiness and success, parents get fixated on this idea that wealth will deliver on well-being. But none of the research actually bears that out. So it's time, like you said, to rewrite our definition or broaden our definition of success. This book is not anti-success. I love achievement. I love succeeding, but I love achievement in more than just my work. I'm like ambitious as a wife. I want to have a good marriage. I'm ambitious as a mother. I want to have a good connection with my kids. I'm ambitious as a friend. I want to have deep, close friendships. I'm ambitious with my hobbies. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's It's not that parents have to not have any ambition for our kids, but actually to be ambitious for more. We're talking to Jennifer Wallace. Her brand new book is Never Enough, and we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. 
Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Jenny, I wanted to talk to you about something called conditional regard because the other sort of like knee-jerk reaction is like, well, I, my kids know this. My kids know that that it doesn't matter what grades they get or where they go to school. I don't tell them that. But there's this thing called conditional regard that our kids are great at perceiving way better than we realize. Tell us about that. So I have yet to meet a parent, either for my book or in my real life, that did not unconditionally love their child. I just have yet to meet that. Unfortunately, as I unpack in the book, our messages, our kids in adolescence are hyper aware to our mixed signals. And so while we definitely feel unconditional love for our kids, the way we sometimes express it with a look of disappointment or whatever, when they don't sort of perform to our expectations, they get this idea that our love, it's read by them as our love is conditional. And I actually, I did this survey with a researcher at Baylor of 518 to 30 year olds. I got to give a whoop whoop because I'm from a Baylor family. So whoop, <laughs> ah, whoop, whoop to Baylor, whoop. sick of bears. <laughs> so he and I wanted to find out from these students, most of them were college students who filled out the survey, 
what they wish their parents had known when they were in high school and if they felt that love as unconditional with their parents. I'd love to read you, if it's okay, like two things that they said, which to me was very eye-opening as a parent. Absolutely. Love it. Okay. So more than 70% of the young adults I surveyed reported that they thought their parents valued and appreciated them more when they were successful in school. And more than 50% thought their parents loved them more when they were successful, with 25% of students saying they believed this a lot, the highest degree the survey allowed. So in other words, one in four of the students in my survey thought that achievement, not who they were as people, was what was most important to their parents. So as parents, you know, we say we love our kids unconditionally. We just want them to be happy. We want them to be caring members of the community. My survey and several other national surveys have found that our kids are not getting that message. The message they are getting is my parents care more about achievement than my character as a person. I want to double click on this because I think it's very interesting. I think that we unconditionally love our children, but there is no world in which we unconditionally value our children. I mean, value or we don't unconditionally like our children. We don't unconditionally respond positively to our children. And so I think it's very interesting to acknowledge that, that like, yeah, when my kid is being a pest and rude and like a stinky, annoying teenager, I unconditionally love him, but certainly I'm not having a great time with it. And I think the missing piece here, which is very illuminating to me, is that that also plays in. I had a kid who came in hysterically crying because he failed a test. And I think of myself as pretty laid back about academics, but he was very worried about it. Like there's something that I'm feeding back because I don't unconditionally accept a 72 and a 100. And I don't unconditionally accept him being sent home for pulling the fire alarm and him being sent home with a note that says he's the greatest kid in class. And I think that the taking unconditional love out of it, like what are the things you're conditional about? And are you clear about those things? And, you know, growing up, my mother loved me unconditionally, but when I came home looking thinner, it was better than when I came home looking heavier. And like, I don't think that she understood those values. So I think this is a very interesting place to really drill down. Like, it's not whether or not you love them. It's what you personally value because that's coming up in the groundwater and whether or not you acknowledge it or not. So I agree, except I will put, you know, a highlighter on what I'm about to say, which is our children's value, who they are as people does not change whether they come in with an A, lose 10 pounds. So in other words, but what they are hearing is their value is contingent on that performance. On So it doesn't mean a parent shouldn't have standards. Absolutely. That's our job to have standards about how work gets done. Are you putting in your effort? Are you eating in healthy ways? Are you taking care of yourself? So just to like give you kind of making the thinking visible, one mother I interviewed, whenever her kid would fail a test or get cut from a team or you know, a friend would reject them. She'd go into her wallet and grab a bill. Let's say she found a $20 bill in her wallet. She would hold it up and she would say, do you want this bill? And the child would say, yes. And she'd say, okay, hang on. She would crumple the bill, put it on the floor, dirty it up, dunk it in a glass of water, and then pick up the bill again and say, do you still want this? 
And the child would say yes. And she said, like this wet, dirty, soggy bill, your worth doesn't change if you get cut from the team, if you fail a quiz, your worth is your worth. And that does not change. Our kids are not getting that message. Our kids are getting their worth is contingent on fill in the blank. That makes a lot of sense. And you make this point about psychologically that we're actually born as humans not knowing what our worth is. That's not an inherent thing. Like I have value. That's not something you're born knowing. It's something that you learn from your environment and that we're doing. I want to go back though, because part of this, Jenny, is that we're feeling the achievement pressure as parents. And you unpack that excellently in the book too. Like we are also these one person villages that are feeling all of this pressure and all of this scarcity, which we're being fed the scarcity mindset. It's not imaginary. We're soaking in it. And then we have to sort of we have to figure this out for ourselves, right? Our own, that our own value is not only not contingent. I can be a crumpled bill and it doesn't really matter where my kid goes to college. It also doesn't really matter like what my hair looks like and that it really starts there before we can be that for our kids. And just to drill, and scarcity mindset just means, just to define that for people, it means fear that there's not enough to go around. Okay. Exactly. So life becomes like a zero sum game. So if somebody gets something, that means you don't get it. So scarcity is, you know, it can be real or imagined. But yes, Amy, I mean, what the work of parenting is also to go into our psychological addicts and unpack the messages we were sent by our school, by our peers, by our parents growing up, unpack those so that we can be more intentional about what we communicate with our kids. And it takes work. And we are under a tremendous amount of pressure. And we are, you know, very siloed in our homes, running ourselves ragged, thinking we're the only one, we're the only one. I'm here to tell you, you are not the only one. I mean, I'd love to read you one other thing. So with the help of a Harvard researcher at the Graduate School of Education, I conducted a parenting survey. And we reached 6,500 parents filled out this survey, which was extraordinary all over the country. And here is the burden that we are feeling. I asked parents on a scale from one to four, how much they agreed or disagreed with this statement. I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success. 75% of parents felt responsible. Now, growing up, I don't think my parents felt responsible if I played well at tennis or where I got into college. They did not feel that pressure. And I think, as we talked about earlier, it's these macroeconomic forces that are pressuring parents. You know, we're sensing fewer safety nets for our kids. And so it's our job to kind of bolster them up and get them as, you know, shiny and pointy and ready for the future. One other thing I would love to say is I asked parents again on that scale from one to four, how much they agreed or disagreed. I wish today's childhood was less stressful for my kids. 87% of parents agreed. I can't believe there were 13% that said, no, it's not so bad. (laughs) That is the more shocking statistic. (laughs) There's one simple thing underlying all of this that's beyond like talk about college less and it's beyond like start this new year. It starts with ourselves. It starts with our kids. And it's this very large concept of mattering. And can you tell us just a little bit about like how you found that and how that came to really jump out at you? Yeah. So in my search for this book, I went looking for the healthy strivers. Who were the kids who were doing well despite the pressures in their environments? I wanted to know what, if anything, they had in common, you know, what their parents focused on at home or 
what their behaviors or mindsets or friendships were like. And I found about 14 things, 14 or 15 things that these healthy achievers had in common. And as I was searching for a framework, I came across mattering. And mattering is an idea that's been around since the 1980s. It was first conceptualized by Morris Rosenberg, who brought us self-esteem. And what he found was kids who enjoyed a healthy level of self-esteem had parents who made them feel like they mattered, that they were important and significant to the family. And, you know, it's been studied since the 1980s straight through today, all different age groups. But what the research finds is that, and what I found in my reporting is that kids who enjoy this healthy level of mattering, who feel valued by their family, their friends, their community, and importantly, who are dependent on to add value back to their families, to their friends, to their communities, those kids were thriving. It didn't mean they didn't have setbacks. It didn't mean they didn't have failures and disappointments, but mattering acted like a protective shield or a buoy that helped lift them up because those setbacks were not an indictment of their worth. They were just setbacks. The kids who seemed to be doing the worst were the kids that I saw. There were two camps. There were kids whose mattering felt conditional, contingent on their performance. The other group of kids felt very important to their families, but they were never depended on or relied on to add value to anyone other than themselves. And so they lacked social proof that they mattered. They mattered to their parents, but there was no proof that they actually were making a positive impact on the world around them. So you have to sort of have these two elements, feeling valued and being dependent on to add value to really experience mattering. We are talking to Jennifer Wallace, the author of Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. And we will be right back. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now, Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners 
on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, well, we love solutions in part three, Jenny. We, we always like to go to, okay, what are we going to do about this? And what I love about this book is it lays out the problem that we are all living in quite clearly, but there is this framework. There are these clear ways out that are unpredictable in some ways. So I wanted to ask you about this. You say that you've stopped telling your kids or saying, I just want you to be happy. That's all I care about is that you be happy. You've stopped saying that. Why is that? I used to solve for my kids' happiness when they were distressed. I would you know, get to the root of it and try to resolve it with them. And now what I've realized is I want to solve for my kids mattering. I want to know when they're not acting like themselves, when they're off, when if they're anxious or down. I want to know, are they not feeling valued by a certain group or is no one depending on them to add value? Where's the social proof that they value? And so if I can solve for their mattering, that is sort of the solution to so many problems. It's the solution to loneliness to anxiety, depression, but it's also a healthy fuel for achievement. Kids, mattering and achievement are not mutually exclusive. Mattering feeds achievement. When you feel like you're making a positive impact on the world, when you have that kind of sense of purpose and meaning, you are more likely to show up in the world in ways that add value to yourselves and to others. Can you give us an example from your life or the book? Because I think people are saying, I think I get it, but I think that this, like for me, I get it. I was like, oh, okay, values doesn't mean pressure. It's, a, you know, figuring it out, mattering. Like, I, I'm not sure I understand what that looks like in a day-to-day with a child. So I'll give you an example. So my son was spent his freshman year of high school in COVID in his bedroom and kept in touch with his friends. But we were out of New York City where we normally live. So he was not seeing his friends for like a year. And so when he got to school the next year, he was he felt, you know, he had friends, but he didn't feel the super connectedness with them. And a few of his peers came up to him and said in the spring and they said, um, would you join the baseball team? of our school because without you, it's the JV team. Without you, we won't be able to play. And baseball is not his thing. He's athletic, but it's not, that's not one of his sports. So he came home to me and he said, mom, what should I do? If I don't play, they literally can't play, but it will interfere with my schoolwork because it'll be two or three hours that I'm, you know, not doing schoolwork. And before researching this book, I think I would have said to him, you know what? Baseball's not your thing. Why don't you put that energy into your academics and it? And that would have been the wrong answer. So instead, I said, what do you want to do? And he said, I think I want to do it. And I said, okay, go for it. And what that gave him was a, such a deep sense of mattering to he had social proof every single day that without him, that team would not be playing. He was critical to the team. And that fed him. It created this really positive upward spiral that even though he didn't have two or three hours you know, a day of the studying, he actually was doing better because he was fueled by this positive energy. So that's just one example of solving for a child's mattering. 
That's a good example. That makes sense. You talk about the micro practices of mattering, that this can start with this, I'm going to start doing this, greeting your children at least once a day, like the dog does. Just like, I'm so happy to see you. Just joy. Just you belong here. Who wouldn't want? I would love for somebody to receive me in my household once a day as happily as the dog does. That's pretty small. And it's pretty, I get it, that that can really start to shift things. Yes. I would say when I asked the leading researcher on this population, what could I do tonight in my house? She said two phrases to me, which go towards the greeting like the family dog. And her advice was minimize criticism, prioritize affection. She said, home needs to be a haven from the pressure. Our kids today are getting those messages everywhere that they need to achieve. They need to strive. She said, home needs to be a place to recover. Doesn't mean a parent doesn't have standards. You know, for a kid to matter means that as a parent, you have to say, I'm willing to invest my time and energy in giving you the skills you're going to need for life. So again, I'm not saying don't give your child scaffolding and encourage healthy work habits. I'm just saying don't focus on shiny outcomes and instead focus on how the work gets done. And when she says minimize criticism, there's a difference between criticizing a child for an action and criticizing a child for who they are. And so separating the deed from the doer when it comes to criticizing, that's how we criticize in a healthier way. And then prioritizing affection, Scott Galloway, who you know wrote this great little book, The Algebra of Happiness, said that for him, affection was the difference between thinking someone loved me and knowing someone did. So if you just keep those two things in mind and minimize criticism, prioritize affection, that will create a real shift towards mattering. We had somebody on the podcast a long time ago, I wish I remembered who it was, but talking about marriage. And this was so transformative in my marriage. Greet your husband like the dog does. And I mean, it really, I just started a practice maybe five years ago of getting out of my seat when my husband got home and going up and giving him a big hug and smiling. And it made our whole, he's default very good at that. And I was always like, he's walking in, I'm like, Hey, grab that thing and take the garbage and right away. It's like, okay, good. My other angry worker at the daycare is finally here to relieve me of my shift. And these small things seem small, but they are not small at all. It can really, and I think I was better at it with my kids. Naturally, I do feel like when I see my kids, like my face lights up and it's like, oh my gosh, you're home. I'm, I am happy to see them. And, but I think these small practices sometimes seem small, but they're not small at all. That's exactly right. Talk about how your child's mattering actually rests on your own as a parent. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the most surprising findings in the research when I was digging in was that the number one intervention for any child who's struggling is to make sure the primary caregiver, most often the mother, that her well-being, her support system, her mental health is intact because a child's resilience rests on a caregiver's resilience. And a caregiver's resilience rests fundamentally on his or her relationships. So if we were to think about the most important way to buffer against the pressures our kids are feeling, to buffer against the anxiety and depression, is to make sure that as the first responders to their struggles, that we are sturdy, that we are nurtured, that we have relationships in our lives that make us feel seen, heard, valued, validated, you know, the kind of caregiving that we want to give to our own kids, 
we require too. And I think, you know, we are sold a bill of goods by the multi-billion dollar self-care industry that you just need me time, you need bubble baths, you need manicures, buy this, buy that for resilience, but resilience rests on our relationships. So as parents, it wasn't that, you know, I was visiting parents in these communities, they had friends. What they didn't have was the time and the emotional bandwidth to invest in these relationships, in these friendships, so that they could be a source of support when they needed them. And it's kind of a catch-22 or a downward spiral, right? Like you're chasing the goal, you're neglecting yourself and your own life because you're chasing the goal. And then you're putting pressure on your kids because like I've given up everything to chase this goal or chase this happy life or whether it's like travel baseball or just like I give my all to you. It feels frustratingly like you're going in kind of a downward circle with that relationship. Absolutely. Oh, got to watch that. All right. Yeah, yeah. I got my notes going on this episode. I'm going to re-listen. We know what we need to do. Our assignments are extremely clear. Jennifer Wallace's brand new book is Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. There is something we can do about it. Jennifer, tell us where our listeners can find all of your work and your new book. Oh, great. Um, you can head over to my website, jenniferbwallace.com, and the book is sold anywhere you like to buy your books. We'll put the links to buy the book in the show notes and to jenniferbwallace.com. Jennifer, thank you for talking to us today. Thanks. Thank you so much. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.